Welcome back about South listeners. We'd like to begin by encouraging you to help the areas and people affected by Hurricane Harvey. We've listed several ways that you can help on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. This week, we're talking to author Brandon Costello about the history of the South and comics. Brandon, along with Kiana Witted, are the co-editors of Comics in the U.S. South. He's also the author of the forthcoming book on comics, Neon Visions, the comics of Howard Shaken, out in October. You can find links to both of these works on our website under Learn. We sat down with Brandon at his home in Baton Rouge to talk about all of the ways the South has been imagined in the comic and graphic text world. We have a lot of fun in this conversation, um, mostly because, once again, I know nothing about what I'm talking about. But Brandon is an excellent guide and his knowledge is virtually encyclopedic. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So a lot of your work is about comics in the South and graphic narratives in the South. Um, can you outline for our listeners what is the history of comics about the South? And is this explosion or recognition of Southern comic books new? Or have Southern topics always been explored in the comic realm? Mm-hmm. I think cartooning about the South is probably as old as print culture about the South. So uh, newspapers and magazines uh, either published in the South or that were about things going on in the South, you were always going to see representations of you know Southern stereotypes and Southern imagery. Obviously, if you think about editorial cartoons about abolition or the Civil War, like there is a very you know, rich history there. Uh, in terms of narrative comics about the South, which is where a lot of the energy of, of my work is and where I think comic studies in general tends to be interested in comics as a kind of narrative form, um, I would say that uh, the, the big explosion of comics about the South comes in comic strips in the 1930s. Uh, the biggest and most uh, famous one and the one that people often still remember is Lil Abner by Al Cap, which started out in 1934, which is of course about this fictional uh, Appalachian community of uh, Dogpatch USA or fictional mountain community. Um, and that's followed very quickly by um, uh, the introduction of Snuffy Smith, uh, that character. That strip that Snuffy Smith is in actually started in 1919 as a strip called Barney Google. Uh, and it was about like a, a guy who had a racehorse and he was a racetrack better in New York. Uh, and in the 30s, they decided to introduce a storyline where he goes to see his country cousins in Appalachia. And Snuffy was so popular that he kind of stole the spotlight away from Barney Google and is now the major, you know, has, you know, that strip is still running, uh, was the major figure. And these were huge. Um, strips in their day and hugely popular in their day. There were spinoffs, there was merchandising, there were musicals, there were movies. Um, so uh, Little Abner at its height, I think, had about 60 million readers for, for that. Um, so that was an era where comics uh, about the South and also comics in general was really, truly a, a mass medium, you know, uh, in the way that something like the most popular comic about the South now, which I guess is probably The Walking Dead, uh, that comic book, 
um, a really great uh, issue, a really high-selling issue of The Walking Dead, you know, is maybe going to sell between 100 and 200,000 copies. And of course, it'll circulate in trade paperback and in collections. But um, that was an era where, where comics were, were much had a much broader reach. Has there been sort of ebbs and flows of that history where at certain times the country has been more interested in comics about the South than other times? So do we sort of see these peaks maybe with little Abner and Snuffy Smith, like something is happening around this time that interests people in this, and then you don't see it for a while, and then something else happens, and we see kind of a focus on the South again? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think that's true. I think uh, it's no surprise that you see a lot of interest in comics about the South during the Great Depression, right? Um, an era when, uh, as various Southern studies scholars and historians have pointed out, the, the nation is getting a little bit anxious about what its future is going to be and if the South is going to be what the rest of the nation is going to turn into. And of course, Little Abner and Snuffy Smith are, are comedies, right? So there's also a kind of sense of the South being this repository of some kind of uh, friendly down homeness that's going to be sort of positive, uh, and that's also some of what you see. I mean, the next big um, comic strip after those is Walt Kelly's Pogo, uh, which ran from uh, 1948 until the till the mid 1970s. Uh, and Pogo was was also a, a comedy, but a very different sort of thing. It was a funny animal strip set in the Okefenokee Swamp, uh, and it was one in which it imagined this sort of um, idealized uh, kind of rustic pastoral swamp setting uh, as a place where these national problems would get sort of adjudicated in a kind of lighthearted and ultimately positive kind of way. So, you know, you would have characters like um, Senator, you know, a character based on Joseph McCarthy coming in and, you know, terrorizing the swamp and forcing everyone to conform and then he's getting driven away. So it's, again, an idea of the South as this kind of imagined space where things are simpler and the complicated problems of the nation can be dealt with by, you know, in this kind of comic, uh, in this kind of comic form. Um, And that, you know, that strip runs all the way to the 70s. And those are those are probably the biggest ones. The other biggest comic strip I can think of off the top of my head that had a Southern focus was uh, Doug Marlette's Kudzu, which which really began only a few years after Pogo ended. It started in uh, 1981 and ran until Marlette died in 2007, which was, um, you know, again, a kind of comedy and uh, was something that was very explicitly about kind of the changing South, the commodification of the South, the, what it meant uh, for the South to be becoming more suburban and more urban and in an era when the South is mainly associated with the rural and the rustic. Um, so, you know, in general, uh, you know, the, the big the big comic book boom of the 30s and 40s where superheroes really became the kind of dominant um, force for a while uh, in the comic book format, um, you didn't necessarily see a lot of Southern stuff in there, right? Those were partly because the centers of production for comic books were was New York, essentially. Most of the cartoonists uh, and writers who were working for the big comic book producers were in or around um, New York. Um, and also, if you just think about the superhero genre as a genre, it's it's about sort of this kind of idealized national futurity. It's a very urban kind of uh, fantasy in some way, right? There's a big overwhelming cityscape, but you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, that sort of thing. So you didn't see a lot of comics in, certainly in the superhero genre in, uh, in that era, that had something to do 
with the South. Um, and that, that has really been a tendency within the superhero genre, at least for most of the 20th century, that when the South shows up, it's always in a horror context, right? Um, it's in, you know, uh, a place that is sort of decadent and excessive and contaminating uh, where, um, you know, these kind of colorful characters from big um, you know, cities from elsewhere in the U.S. come to kind of face down some, some, kind, of, some kind of threat. Um, but there have always been, you know, horror comics about the South uh, that didn't have anything to do with superheroes either. you've touched on this a little bit before what do you see as some of the common put this in quotes maybe southern themes that comics have taken up what Mm -hmm. are some of the recurring elements or tropes or how have authors of comics artists and narrative um narrative authors how have they approached the south and do you see differences in representation um, depending upon whether or not it's a comic that is attempting to be about the South or when a sort of mainstream or national comic goes South? Mm-hmm. What kind of themes and differences do we see in those moments? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to kind of tie, tie back to the, our earlier discussion about sort of the superhero genre and the South um, is that something that starts happening in the 80s, in the 1980s, is that cartoonists and, and comics writers get sort of interested in the South as this space that doesn't seem to fit into the genre. And, and there are a number of comics that seem interested in sort of the theme of the complicated relationship between the South as a region and the nation, like, and, and are in, kind of investigating the idea of the South as the nation's sort of dark other you know, the place where all the un-American things happen so that America can be America without having to feel guilty about it. Um, so, you know, there's a famous um, Alan Moore and, and Stephen Bissett Swamp Thing story where Superman gets this terrible virus and he knows it's going to make him go crazy and, and, and commit these horrible acts of violence. And he doesn't uh, want uh, to escalate the destruction by having all his superhero friends uh, in Metropolis try to stop him. And so the narration says that he's going to go the one place where there are no superheroes. And so he drives to Louisiana. Right. Um, there are no superheroes in Louisiana. Well, so he gets here and then the Swamp Thing finds him. Right. But the Swamp Thing is a very different type of character. Right. And Superman never even knows that the Swamp Thing has found him because he's delirious. Right. And so the Swamp Thing, who in the way that Alan Moore wrote him, was just a plant who thought he was a man. Right. Uh, you know, helps him cure him of this uh, disease that he's gotten. Um, but that's, you know, again, typical of like what the South is in the superhero genre. It's the place where uh, all the sort of well quaffed and, you know, tight, you know, tightly starched, you know, idealized kind of physical specimens that we associate with the superhero genre are absent. And instead, it's somebody who is this kind of shambling accretion of mud and, and whatever else. Right. Who just happens to think he's human. Who just happens to think he's human. Right. And it turns silly, out that he's not. Silly plant. Right. <laughs> and there's another more Swamp Thing story where, uh, you know, a villain is trying to take over the world and he starts in LaCroix, Louisiana. And uh, the Justice League has no idea what to do because no one was watching LaCroix, Louisiana. Right. They were looking at Atlantis and they're looking in outer space and they were looking for Metropolis. But because he started in this backwoods town in Louisiana, nothing happened there. Um, but so there are there are things like um, um, 
Mark Gruenwald and Kieran Dwyer did a storyline uh, in, in Captain America, right, in the mainstream Marvel series Captain America in the 1980s where uh, Captain America decided that he couldn't work for the government because he thought they might make him take on political missions that he disagreed with, right? And so he quits. And so they're looking for a replacement and they replace him with uh, this sort of uh, reactionary conservative from Georgia who is the new Captain America, right? And uh, he turns out to be really bad at being Captain America. Uh, for so it's a number Newt Gingrich. Of, it's Newt, yeah, if you can imagine Newt Gingrich <laughs> as Captain America, this is what you would get, right? And so it, it is an attempt, at least, by, writers who, by, by these writers at the time to kind of think sort of critically about, you know, and in that era when people are anxious about the southernization of America, right? That's at least how it's being thought about. Um, people are anxious about, well, what does it mean if we, instead of having Captain America, who's a New Deal liberal from Brooklyn, as the symbol of our America, what is it if New, Green, New Gingrich is now the symbol of America? And they give he has an African-American sidekick who he's constantly abandoning um, and uh, uh, who, who does nothing but adore him and who he is constantly abandoning um, whenever, you know, and so he has to betray his friend in order to be Captain America. So it's a very Huck Finn uh, and Jim sort of thing um, kind of happening. Um, and that character, when the original Captain America comes back, that character becomes another character called the U.S. Agent uh, who dresses just like Captain America except in red, white, and black and goes around doing all the things that Captain America is unwilling to do because his moral principles are too strict, right? So it's still this idea that the South is here to kind of do the nation's dirty work on some level. Oh, wow. Um He's wearing red, white, and black. So, like, he's literally like a UGA fan. <laughs> yeah. Going around doing the nation's dirty right? work. Well, you know, and that's interesting. There's a, um, I'm speaking of uh, how Southern football plays into this. So, there was uh, an independent series in the 1980s called Southern Nights. And, and one of the things that happened in the 1980s was comic shops became the main way that people bought comics as opposed to the newsstand. Uh, which meant that the you know anybody um, could you know kind of start a comics publishing company. You didn't have to be one of the big enterprises because if the comic shops are buying it, you can sell. You know you're going to have a dedicated clientele of ten or twenty or thirty thousand people, and you can keep your comic afloat that way. And so there was a series uh, set in Atlanta called Southern Knights. Uh, they were called the Crusaders, and then someone said no. Uh, and so they became called the Southern Knights. And um, it was an attempt to kind of do a kind of classic kind of urban superhero melodrama set in Atlanta, right? So an attempt to really kind of embrace the idea of Atlanta as, you know, the national city uh, in the South in some kind of way. Um, and it, it's an odd, an odd series because there's a, there's a really fascinating point where... Um, one of the characters, you know, they're in a, an Annabella mansion, of course, as their headquarters. And one of the characters accidentally goes through a time portal in the mansion and ends up um, uh, ends up in Puritan, Georgia, which you may not remember as ever having been a thing, right? Ends up at, at like some version of the witch trials, right? And so the idea, the idea, and of course, people wrote in and said this this didn't happen in Georgia. You know, this was somewhere else. But the idea is that, like, it's so obsessed with, you know, Atlanta as this kind of city that isn't like the rest of the South, even though it wants to claim itself as the South, that even, like, the storyline where someone goes back to its historical sins are, um, you know, it's the nation's sins instead of, like, the region's sins on some way. The reason I was connecting that to football was that one of the characters uh, doesn't really wear a superhero outfit. She just wears a Clemson polo. <laughs> yeah, because she's, Clem she's a Clemson fan. 
<laughs> so her superhero getup is a Clemson polo. Is a glimpse Clemson. Is it polo. purple or orange? It's orange. It's a white polo with an orange like paw. And she and the, one of the other team members who's a Georgia fan, they have a kind of beef about this. Oh, a friendly beef. Wow. What, does he dress in UGA wear or? No, he turns into electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's Southern Nights? Southern Nights, yes. How long did that last? That ran a surprisingly, uh, had a long run. It started in, uh, in you know, the mid-80s and ran until the early 90s, off and on, you know. Um, there was another uh, originally black and white series from that era called Captain Confederacy, which... I've was... heard of Captain Confederacy. Yeah, what's that about? So Captain Confederacy is set in an alternate history where the South won the Civil War, um, and uh, it is about this character who is Captain Confederacy, who has superpowers, but is a kind of um, uh, propaganda tool for the Confed- for the you know the modern version of the Confederate States of America. And over the course of the two Captain Confederacy series, he falls in love with an African American woman who plays one of the antagonists that he you know sort of defeats in propaganda battles. Uh, and they have a kid, and the, the woman he's fallen in love with becomes the new Captain Confederacy, right? And so there, there is, you know, you have this kind of striking image near the end of the series of uh, a pregnant African American woman wearing a costume made out of a Confederate flag, right? And it's a, you know, it's a very sort of uh, utopian series in its intent, right? And in that it is trying to imagine a kind of version of the South that is that has the South symbols and has the South sort of rhetoric, but is somehow a kind of interracial um, and more progressive um, kind of South. But it's also a series that can't, that is so obsessed with those symbols and so obsessed with sort of identifying as Southern and trying to argue uh, that the Confederate flag, you know, really, you had the spectacle of an African-American woman character sort of giving long speeches about how not everybody who fought for the Confederacy was for slavery and that sort of thing. So it's uh, whatever sort of individual anti-racism that it may be sort of laudably trying to promote, it uh, ends up being a story that is about how it's okay for everyone to fly the Confederate flag because it really stood for something different than you think it stands for. Did they get any pushback on that? Yeah, you know, not a lot. I mean, first of all, because no one was reading it. It had a very small circulation. (laughs) Uh, The letter columns for the series are really interesting because they do turn into, you know, some people writing back to say they think that's wrong, some people writing in to, uh, you know, quibble with uh, the sort of alternate history he's created, which isn't very um, well thought out in a lot of cases. And when the series was republished um, recently in, in a collected edition, uh, he made some revisions, right, to like to her speech and to other sorts of thing and, and to other kind of moments where that happens, where he tried to kind of, I think, um, tone down some of that rhetoric. And it didn't really change the meaning. It made some of them a little less egregious. But um, it was, again, an idea of, of the series that wanted to imagine the South as this ideal interracial kind of progressive space, but was so fetish, you know, was so interested in fetishizing the ideals of the old South um, and trying to reclaim them in some way that it couldn't kind of get out of its own way. for this because, you know, I've been talking trash about Walking Dead for years, but I haven't actually gone back and looked at it in a long time. I thought maybe I was just in a bad mood when I read it. Maybe it gets better. 
And so I got the big, the first big omnibus um, edition, which collects, I think, the first eight trade paperbacks, which is like the first 48 issues of the series. A couple weeks ago, I said, I'm going to give Walking Dead, you know, another chance. And I think it is an astonishing achievement to fill that many pages without a single moment of visual or narrative interest. Like, how can you produce that much story <laughs> that has nothing on its mind except, like, casual misogyny, right? So I, I think, uh, you know, Walking Dead is, just, is a comic that is not interesting to me because it sort of fails as a comic, at least for me as a reader. It's uh, the early issues that are drawn by Tony Moore are, are, I think are more interesting than the later ones. Charlie Adler's a, a perfectly good artist, but there's nothing really um, visually striking about the series. It really does seem like a kind of pitch for a TV show done in comics form on some level. It doesn't seem to be exploiting the possibilities of the medium in a particularly interesting way. There are plenty of dull kind of stories or generic stories that I like because whoever is drawing them is bringing some interesting bit of visual kind of flair to them, right? Or is reinterpreting them in an interesting way. And that's, you know, the first kind of duty of any kind of visual medium. Um, and, you know, I, I realize I'm in the minority in, in the world in Walking Dead, and I've read some interesting scholarship on Walking Dead that has made me think I need to give it uh, maybe more of a chance, but uh, I don't think I'm going to now. What are some of your favorite Southern comics? Mm-hmm. So I really love Swamp Thing, the, the, and I'm thinking particularly of the run with uh, Alan Moore writing and Steve Bissett and John Todleben and, uh, and various other people um, inking it. I think that is a really interesting example of a comic, you know, by people who have no, you know, connection or, you know, sort of don't have the kind of investment in the fantasy of the South that someone who is from the South might necessarily have, but are thinking critically about how the South fits into the nation, are thinking critically about how our narratives about what the South is fit into debates about ecology and, and heroism and masculinity uh, and all these different um, kinds of things. I think that's a great, that's, a, that's a, a comic that is, you know, very interestingly written. I think it's very interestingly uh, visual, you know, has a very interesting visual style. Um, I really like the work of Nate Powell, who is the artist on John Lewis's March trilogy, uh, which is itself is, is wonderful. And then Powell's uh, own work, um, especially two graphic novels he's done, one called Swallow Me Whole, which is a kind of um, coming-of-age story about uh, mental illness that has uh, a kind of very kind of creepy Southern Gothic magic realist sort of vibe. Uh, and then uh, a graphic novel called Any Empire, which is about sort of United States military culture and the South, which also has a kind of, uh, you know, experimental magic realist um, kind of um, take to it. I think those are really, really interesting comics. Uh, and I think, you know, those are ones where people are going to be writing about for a long time. I love Preacher, as I already mentioned. I mean, you know, uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, I think that's uh, great. I really like Howard Cruz's Stuck Rubber Baby, um, which is, uh, you know, his sort of semi-autobiographical tale of coming of age and coming out uh, during the civil rights movement. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I really like that bizarre Captain America storyline I was talking about earlier. I think it's really interesting, you know. Um, so, um, you know, those are some of the ones that, that stand out to me as, uh, as uh, good ones. I guess one of the other ones that I would highlight is Jeremy Love's Bayou. Uh, which there are two volumes of now and a third volume on the way um, at some point in the future. Bayou is um, a story about uh, set in Mississippi in the 1930s um, about a little girl named Lee Wagstaff, who's African-American, whose um, job is to sort of retrieve the bodies of uh, people who've been lynched or murdered from the bayou so that they can be kind of married, they can be buried. 
And um, it go the story when she goes into the swamp at one point um, because one of her friends is kidnapped by this monster that suddenly emerges from the swamp because that becomes this very kind of supernatural tale in which she is engaging with um, sort of representations of the South and of uh, Black Southerners, especially on this kind of mythical plane. So Uncle Remus is a real character. There are Jim Crows that descend from the sky and try to peck out your eyes. You know, there um, Stagger Lee is a character, right? And so Br'er Rabbit is a character. And so she is having to kind of contend uh, in this sort of, you know, heavily kind of symbolic sort of way with the ways in which uh, black life has been narrated in the South, the way in which, you know, fantasies of the South have been narrated. And it's sort of uh, this kind of uh, story that is about um, how the South is interpreted and how it's read and what possibilities are available for telling the story in different ways or getting away from telling a story about, quote unquote, the South at all. You know? There's also um, Sophie Campbell's Wet Moon, uh, which is a kind of romance horror series set in a kind of fictional version of Savannah, uh, including some characters who are uh, attending a, an institute that's kind of like Savannah College of Art and Design. And so that's um, you know something that is playing with a lot of those standard kind of horror tropes about the South, but uh, is taking it in a different sort of direction. Have you had a chance to look at the new graphic edition of Kindred? Yes, I just taught it last semester. Oh, okay. Would you like to tell us? I mean, this seems... Octavia Butler's Kindred is a fantastic right. novel. It is one of my very favorite novels about the South. Mm -hmm. How do you find the graphic adaptation of that novel? I liked it quite a bit. Uh, John Jennings is the artist who did uh, the, the art for the adaptation, and Damian Duffy, I think, adapted... Uh, the prose, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I, I like uh, Jennings' uh, style. It has a kind of rough-hewn kind of quality to it. Uh, it's very kind of scratchy and angular. Um, and I think it's really interesting in the way that the, the comic kind of deals with um, the, the idea of Dana's sort of um, kind of modern... Um, Blind, you know, blindness or blind spots or, or gaps in her kind of knowledge, right? The ways that she thinks she understands things and then has to go back and experience them firsthand in order to get them. I think it's it's a series that you know, it's a, or it's an adaptation that could run the risk of being very explo exploitative in the way that uh, it has to go back and you know visualize some of the things that are just described that are horrible when they're described in the book. Um, but uh, I think it does a nice job of that. I mean, I think. Maybe ultimately the things that are most interesting uh, in the adaptation are, are there in the text, but I think the adaptation makes some interesting visual choices that, you know, certainly, um, you know, I was teaching a class on comics in the South, so it was an ideal kind of pick for that. Do you think readers of Kindred, would you need to have read Kindred to appreciate the graphic version? No, I don't think so. Most of the people in the class had not read Kindred and were able to, to, make, to make sense of it to understand the plot. Another one that has gotten a lot of publicity and I've seen a lot of people talking about lately is Southern Bastards. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on that? I am kind of hate reading Southern Bastards uh, in that I still get it every month. It is visually really amazing. Um, and this is where I think it's, it's, this is one of the reasons I'm still with it as opposed to having uh, kind of abandoned Walking Dead. Uh, Jason Latour the artist is really um, astonishing, I think. Uh, he's really great at, at violence. He's really good at um, doing um, 
uh, both these kind of moments of sort of, uh, you know, really beautiful moments when, when there's quiet, but also doing uh, moments of great sort of visceral impact, right, and kind of grotesqueness. Uh, I think he's great. I really enjoy his work. And I, I enjoy a lot of the work of the writer, Jason Aaron. But it's a series that, for me, you know, kind of opened by promising that it was going to, or suggesting that it was going to take a kind of critical posture towards, or at least a kind of thoughtful posture towards, uh, certain ideals about kind of masculinity and the South. I mean, I like, you know, the premise of the, of the series, for those who haven't read it, is that it's set in Craw County, Alabama, and the idea is that the local football coach is also the local crime lord, right? And so as, as a way of taking the kind of cliche that, you know, so, high school football rules, you know, southern communities and like turning it up to 11, I think that's great. I think it's like stupid in the best way. I mean that as a compliment. Like that is a great high concept. But the point of like turning things up to 11 is that like you get some distortion, you know, and like the sound starts to fall apart and you hear different things or you begin to understand why something is bad. You get a little feedback. And it just feels like the kind of, you know, same sort of tropes played loud to me. You know, it, it, it you know, promises early on that, you know, it's going to um, do something a little different than it does. And, it, it, and maybe it'll get there, but it seems to really be enjoying kind of um, playing the hits, you know, of just having, you know, uh, talking about how, you know, the glory of Southern football and the horror of Southern football, but the horror is also the glory and, you know, men um, beating each other up uh, and that sort of thing. I think early on the series introduces like an actual quote unquote magical Negro sidekick for the, for one of the main characters and never seems to think about it ever. He's a, he's a blind African-American guy who is the defensive coordinator for the football team who can just magically draw up these defenses, even though, um, even though he can't see, and he's also there mainly to kind of help the main sort of anti-hero or antagonist, like to, you know, help him find himself. Uh, and then, of course, he gets killed, you know. So, and, and you know, I, I kept reading those issues thinking, well, surely at some point you're going to acknowledge that this is messed up, right? Or at least, you know, try to disidentify with this a little bit. But um, the series doesn't, you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really do it. So, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting, too. That's a series where the letters pages are really interesting, because the concept, as I say, is very clearly like, you know, uh, science, you know, not science fiction, but like a really exaggerated version of a Drive-By Truckers album or something like that. Like it's got, you know, it, it's clearly not trying to reflect reality, uh, except in the most kind of um, extreme sort of way. But the letters pages are full of people writing in going, yes, this is exactly the South I grew up in, or this is exactly what I know. It's This is real, right? It's a really interesting example of a fake South being kind of becoming the real South in the way that people are uh, responding to it in the way, you know, um, that I think um, someone like Scott Romine would be very interested in, right? The reactions to the series are not to say, oh, what a great parody or a great satire or a great um, kind of over-the-top, you know, grindhouse-y, exploitation-y kind of take on this as much as they have been, uh, yes, you have really captured something about the Alabama that I grew up in sort of thing. Right. It just defaults back to, oh, these portrayals are so authentic. Authenticity, yes. Absolutely. And then it's like, so the football coach <laughs> in your town was also the crime lord? Right. That's what you're saying? I know that they um, have the one issue, I guess, that I've heard has become quickly collectible that came out after the Confederate flag was taken down mm -hmm. in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. The, I think there's maybe like a pit bull on the cover and it says, down with the flag, long live the South. Mm -hmm. I 
feel very ambivalently about the image they use on the front and the language. And I thought, maybe I'm just not getting it. But something still troubles me about the way they're using this moment mm -hmm. in the comic. But maybe I'm just not getting it. Or no. maybe I'm cynical. I mean, this <laughs> Southern Studies has made me cynical. I'll sure. go on the record as saying that. I mean, I think it's genuinely well-intentioned. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think it's a case, in some ways, it kind of goes back to Captain Confederacy anyway, because I think it's a case where individually those creators are anti-racist and none of them really cherish any fantasies of the Old South. And uh, they, you know, do not, don't want to see the Confederate flag flying. But there's such an investment, you know, and so that's, you know, I think that was a good thing. They did that cover. But there's such an investment in like this idea of southernness, right? That if we can just like purify this out of it, if we can still have white southernness but without the Confederate flag, or if we can still have, you know, these aspects of this kind of mythical South or Southern fantasy or the, these ideals of masculinity, but we can just put that to the side, then it'll be okay. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of thought about how these things are kind of interdependent. Right, and that I mean. It's a matter of attempting to maybe refine a concept that all of its performative identity is based in those things. Mm -hmm. So once you refine all of the bad parts out of it, right. what are you left with and why do you want to hold on to those parts? Right. right? Yeah, I mean, it's another case where, uh, you know, the, the crime bosses, you know, minions, like it's, a, it's an interracial crew. Like, you know, the, one of his former football players who's African-American also, you know, kind of works for him. And, you know, he gets a little development of his own. But it's also, you know, just a, yeah, you know, you're taking all this, all these things that you don't like out, but you know, what's left, you know. Yeah, and why do you want to hold on to those shreds? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to articulate. It's something like I want refined sugar, but I don't want to know about sugarcane plantations <laughs> or the process of refining sugar. Yes. But I want to take all of the bad parts out of right. it. I just want the product. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how it works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I do feel ambivalently about the comic because people are doing well-intentioned things. Yeah. But then, like I said, maybe sometimes it's hard to know when it's just... Uh, complete Southern Studies uh, cynicism. So, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I don't like anything. Walking right. Dead, don't like it. Southern Bastards, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> drive-by truckers, like, have you listened to your music? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit of that, but I, I don't, I don't like to say like, oh, we can't like anything, but no, I do yeah. think there is something um, that's, that you want to see just push it a bit further. Mm -hmm. Like, where you're going, like, don't stop when it gets right. hard. Like, keep pushing it. Yeah, and, and I should say, I mean, maybe it's unfair. Some of the Baptists is still ongoing, right? And so Absolutely. who knows where this is going to end up? I mean, and the marker they lay down early, right, is that the kind of Buford Pusser character, you know, has a, has a mixed-race daughter, right? And so who's, you know, gradually now in the series' second year kind of coming into the fore and is, you know, I think a lot of the series is going to live or die on how well they, you know, deal with her story and her characterization. In an ideal world, what should be adapted? Or do you feel like leave my comics alone adaptation world? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I was pretty grouchy about adaptations uh, a minute ago. Um, but there are some things I wouldn't mind seeing adapted. Like, I think, an, a, you know, a long-running Swamp Thing series might be really interesting. I think, you know, there is space now in terms of the visual effects you can do uh, and in the way that, you know, these comic series can, uh, or TV series now, are, are getting these long but finite kind of serializations that you could do an interesting, I would love to see, like, a Swamp Thing show on HBO every Sunday. I think that would be a lot of fun. And that's a case, too, where there have been so many interpretations of Swamp Thing that I don't feel like it's got to hew to anyone or that some specific thing from anyone is going to be lost because it's a, you know, it's a corporate property, you know, a, a film, a, a TV or film adaptation of it. Is Who fun. should play Swamp Thing? That I don't know. Like Woody Harrelson? Woody Harrelson would be great. Yeah. He's not going to get in that makeup. There's no way. No. Woody Harrelson is not at the point in his career where he's going to put on Swamp Thing makeup every day. Yeah. It's got to be someone younger, hungrier. Yeah. Swampier. <laughs> I don't know who that is. No, me neither. Thanks for listening this week. We're off the next two weeks for our mid-season break, and we cannot believe that we are halfway through the second season. The time really flies. But don't worry, we're back in two weeks with back-to-back episodes on classic fall things, including football and state fairs. About South is produced by me, along with Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danso. Lindsay Baker helps us with social marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can stop by and tell us what your favorite Southern comics are and we'll be sure to talk about those in our season roundup episodes. Enjoy your holiday weekend. Labor Day is the best holiday and we will see you in two weeks.